Today's sponsor is Intercept Music, a complete marketing and distribution platform that empowers independent artists everywhere. This is your place to upload your newest music, to launch your social media campaigns, to make sure that your music reaches everyone that it should reach, and empower you to maintain ownership of what you want. Intercept Music is brand new. Method Man is one of its advisors and investors. And if you want to learn more, go to interceptmusic.com to see how it can take your career to the next level. I think monetization for every user is the wave of the future. I keep saying it. I think that there isn't a person right now that isn't subscribed to at least one thing. And once subscription becomes more and more the common vernacular of how we engage with content, social media is the last, you know, frontier that's left. You know, when you think about TV and, and film with Hulu and Netflix and Disney Plus and music with Spotify and Apple Music and print media with Forbes and the New York Times and Billboard and then productivity software like Adobe Premiere Pro, Microsoft Word, like you don't, you're subscribed to something. You're, you're probably subscribed to an app on your phone that allows you to edit your photos. And so subscriptions are just the, the language. And so I think that's going to be the language of the future moving forward. Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcy. This podcast is your place to gain insights from the executives in music, media, entertainment, and more who are taking hip hop culture to the next level. Today's guest is Isaac Hayes III. He's the founder and CEO of Fanbase. Fanbase is a company that helps creators better monetize the content they put out. And on Fanbase's platform, followers can subscribe for $3.99 a month to get all of the exclusive content from their favorite creators, or they can follow creators and they can spread love. Love is the primary form of engagement on Fanbase, and it's how creators monetize. The more likes and love they get, the more revenue that they get into their pockets. So Fanbase addresses a lot of the challenges that people have had about social media more broadly. And in this chat, Isaac and I talk about what the journey's been like. He's been able to raise $6 million through crowdfunding. He did it through this platform called Start Engine, and he's had many well-known investors on board, folks like Snoop Dogg, Charlemagne the God, Candy Burris, Chameleonaire, Roland Martin, and more. So we talked about his decision to go that path as opposed to the traditional VC route. Isaac and I also talked about the trend of music publishing and the catalog sales that have been happening and why he actually thinks that a lot of musicians should not be selling their catalogs. He is not the only person to say this, but these voices have been a little bit quieter in this narrative. So it was great to hear his perspective on this. And then we also talked about the other hat that Isaac wears. He is the manager of his late father's estate. His father is the legendary singer Isaac Hayes. So we talked about what that experience has been like managing the estate and how his father's experience in the music industry informed a lot of the work that Isaac Hayes III himself wants to create and the opportunities he wants to do through Fanbase. We also talked about what an Isaac Hayes biopic would look like and who Isaac Hayes III would want to play his father in a movie. I think he had a pretty good answer. I'm a big fan of this person, so I think you'll enjoy who he said. We also talked about Atlanta's impact and just how influential that city has been in culture and for fan base as well. We had a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Here's my chat with Isaac Hayes III. 
All right. Today we got Isaac Hayes III with us. He's the co-founder and CEO of Fanbase, an app that helps creators monetize the content that they put out in the world and get what's there. So Isaac, thank you for joining. And it'd be great to just hear from you how things been going with you and how things been going with Fanbase. What's the latest been? Man, we just closed our second CE round of $2.6 million on Start Engine. So we've raised a total of $6 million in less than a year. It's been phenomenal. We're adding a lot of amazing functionality to fan base. New features are rolling out in the next couple of weeks. A new version of audio, which is one of our flagship features on the platform that's monetized for all users. So it's an exciting time at Fanbase. Can you talk to me about your fundraising process a bit? Because I know that you crowdfunded the six billion, you were able to do it in a few different stages, but what made you go that route as opposed to the more traditional venture capital fundraising I think route? Two things. One was just a recommendation by a really good mentor of mine to do so. And it was in COVID because, you know, we couldn't move. And I had a real kind of like off-putting conversation with a VC and it immediately reminded me of the music business. And so in my mind, I immediately thought, okay, VCs are like the label and I'm like an artist trying to get a record deal. And so Start Engine gave me the opportunity to go independent and sell my shares out of the trunk of my car to the tune of $6 million, which gives us better leverage and lets people know that we don't need venture capital to raise serious cash. And so that's really how it, you know, wound up being that way. Yeah. I've heard the comparisons from a lot of people. And I think the thing you often hear from folks that do crowdfund is that it can take a lot of time to get there. But at least from what I've seen from your process, you were able to get several thousand investors in a pretty short amount of time. So what were the steps from that perspective to keep the momentum hot and to make sure that you had a strong pipeline? I think the best thing is when you're in, I think the biggest benefit was the fact that it's a product that the investors can actually use in real time. So it's not like they're giving to something and they're investing in something and not knowing what the product will be or what it does. They're a part of it in real time and it's something that's relatable to them. If I go and invest in a tech startup that does something to do with aerospace engines, cool, but I'm not with it every day. I just sit back and hope that they make the best decision possible with my investment. But fan base is something that I think is more personal to people because of where we are in social media. So I think that gave it a lot of energy because people are a part of the process and they feel part of the platform and part of this journey together in real time. So it's something that you can use, you know, and then who better, like I say, to give actual equity in a social media startup than to the users themselves that will actually make the platform grow. And I think you were able to find some influential folks with that too, right? You got Candy Burris, you got Charlemagne, and of course, with their platforms, they were able to help amplify and can connect you with other investors or just other creators, given what they've done. Yeah, but but we honestly haven't used them in that fashion. And I actually don't typically want them or to do that particularly yet. And the reason being is because I like the fact that they are silent in their action because... A lot of times when when people of notoriety step out in a space where they're investing in a platform, it may turn other people off that feel like, well, I didn't get that opportunity. And in social media, it's more about the users. The most important investors on Fanbase, and, and we have some really big, big name investors, the most important investors on Fanbase are the actual users, the larger, broader, probably a sea of 8,000 plus individuals that have put their money in and actually use the platform on a day-to-day basis, who will be those day-to-day, you know, hardcore super users. But the relationships and those investors that are 
of a high stature, like a Snoop Dogg and stuff like that, their time will come later. They'll, I know, they'll know exactly when they're going to get on and when they're going to turn the engine up on the platform. So we're just, you know, we're focused on the core audience and the core um, investors of the platform being what we really focus on in fan base. And with 8,000 investors, you mentioned $6 million raised, it makes it pretty affordable too, you know, for people to be able to have a stake. Because I think that's one of the challenges that you often see from institutional money that comes through or some of the minimum buy-ins for some investments is that it isn't always the most accessible for folks that may be interested. So I think you were able to at least allow that to happen too, given the amount of people that were able to invest for the total amount you have. Absolutely. I mean, the accredited investor rule has kind of been a barrier for all people. You know, I don't care what race you are. If it's a law that's been in effect since 1933, it's just only given opportunities to rich to rich people to actually invest in early stage companies. But you're coming out of the Great Depression. If you ever wonder why none of your family members got a call to invest in IBM or Microsoft or Apple or, or Facebook and so on and so forth, it's this accredited investor rule that has given all the best opportunities at wealth to the wealthy. And so I love the fact that Barack Obama and Joe Biden passed the Jobs Act and allow people like myself to go to my peers and the public to actually have the same opportunity that VCs and accredited investors have to get a piece of the American dream by investing the same way that all these other people have been able to do for 83 years. I think we're going to see the rules continue to break down on that. I know now they have that flexible option where I think if you take the series 63 or seven or one of those tests, then you can become accredited. So that's one way to pass the income thresholds. But I feel like even that is probably going to break down at some point. That just feels like where everything is headed. It should. I mean, one of the seed investors in Uber, a guy by the name of Oren Michaels, only invested $5,000 into Uber. But when it IPO'd in 2019, his 5000 was worth $24 million. And I'm like, well, how come we can go to Vegas and spend $5,000 on the crap table or go buy $5,000 worth of lottery tickets, but I can't invest in Uber? And I think that's the real crime is that, you know, it's okay that if you go blow your money gambling in that fashion, but not gambling in, in the fashion of investing your, your money in a startup like Uber, which wound up being very, very successful. So the rules have to change and platforms like Start Engine are breaking down those barriers. Right. Especially when so many of the people using it and giving these startups their early validation are the ones that believe it's seeing the future. So I feel like those dots got to connect eventually. But they will for sure. Going back to fan base itself and how things are, I read that you have a goal, be able to hit a million users in June. And it would be great to hear what your strategy has been in terms of acquiring customers. What's been the most effective thing that you've done to get more creators and users onto the platform? I think the biggest thing is actually just word of mouth, right? It's the quality of the product. And then I think we're in a very unique time, a very opportunistic time for platforms like Fanbase to emerge because of this transition from users wanting more access to their following. They're getting tired of words like shadow banning and content suppression and stuff like that. And algorithms are becoming the enemy of the common user on a platform or even the super user on a platform because platforms typically are profitable off ad revenue. And so for that to happen, you can't simultaneously provide visibility for every user on a platform 
and then run ads at the same time. That's counterproductive to the business model, because if that's the case, then the people that buy ads would just go to the users themselves and run ads that way. And then you would have no business model. And so fan base is just, you know, emerging at a time right now that I think the conversation is different. Ad-based revenue for social media platforms is going to continue to change. That puts us right at the right time to continue to grow. So word of mouth and then timing is just helping us. And then we have an amazing creator advisory board of young people. There's some other strategic partnerships that I'm really excited to, to begin working on that are really rooted in community and rooted in the culture of what we want on fan base, which is young centennial people of all races, ages, backgrounds, creating content and monetizing. What are some of those partnerships? Anything you can share with us? No, because, and the reason why I can't is because they're really savvy in the way there's things that I think social media startups, I'll say this, like, I think fan base has the best advantage to become a social media unicorn by simply being in Atlanta. And what I mean by that is like Atlanta is the epicenter of black culture in the United States of America. And what we know about black culture is black culture is pop culture. And what we know about pop culture is pop culture is what drives social media. And so therefore, if you're right at the, the epicenter of where the viral challenge is going to happen or the newest funny influencer or the dance challenge or the artist is at, being able to have them be part of fan base and part of that community gives us a really big advantage. So some of those partnerships are rooted in culture and community and music. I can't announce them or say anything because it, it's really dope, though, the way that we have an advantage to do so. And I think a lot of the other platforms know that, which is why they kind of try to pivot and, and also try to acquire those users from Atlanta, those the talent. They're like, oh, let's pay them. Let's try to get them, you know, in the same way. But I think fan base just has a little bit more of an advantage. I hear that. And thinking too about making sure that the talent gets paid fairly, I think that's been an underlying theme for so much of why you wanted to create this. There have been so many people that we've seen have become viral sensations or creators who have a strong following, but being able to really tap into that in a meaningful way hasn't always worked. And in some cases, it's everyone else making money instead of them. I think you would have that story about the ghetto Spider-Man and how the person behind that had blown up, but he's the one calling you like, hey, what do I do? Like, is anything that can help here? And you think about that and you just think about all these creators, whether it's folks on TikTok that are like the guy that does the hands video, you know, he is, you know, one of the biggest creators, but he isn't anywhere on that Forbes list of the top creators. So I feel like you being able to bridge that connection of, okay, there's clearly a market gap here and how we can have a platform that can close that and how big of an opportunity that is. It's an enormous opportunity. I think monetization for every user is the wave of the future. I keep saying it. I think that there isn't a person right now that isn't subscribed to at least one thing. And once subscription becomes more and more the common vernacular of how we engage with content, social media is the last, you know, frontier that's left. You know, when you think about TV and, and film with Hulu and Netflix and Disney Plus and music with Spotify and Apple Music and print media with Forbes and the New York Times and Billboard and then productivity software 
like Adobe Premiere Pro, Microsoft Word, like you don't, you're subscribed to something. You're, you're probably subscribed to an app on your phone that allows you to edit your photos. And so subscriptions are just the, the language. And so I think that's going to be the language of the future moving forward. It is just, it gives everybody a chance to make money as opposed to the people that the apps highlight to be most successful because they're the best vehicles for ads to run in between their content. Think about that. Like the larger audience on the greater audience of a platform like TikTok, since there's really only one kind of like channel, it's literally just a platform of short form video. So the, the wider audience on the demographic on that platform is a white audience just based off the United States. So therefore it would behoove them to have bigger white stars to run ads to monetize that larger audience. So that's what they kind of have to focus on. So fan base doesn't worry about that. It doesn't matter who you are. Everybody can be superstar on the platform. Yeah. And that piece about the subscriptions as well, it's just everyone having them and seeing who can profit off of it. It also makes me think of exchange you and I had had recently. We're talking about what's happening right now in the music industry and these catalog valuations too. You had shared a perspective that artists actually should not be selling their publishing or their catalogs because how much room streaming has to grow. And you just look at some of the demographics on that. What's yeah. your take on it? And how much bigger do you think this market will get? Man, I think it'll be massive. Like I said, at the time, last year was 400 and I think it was 450 million people on music streaming services. This year, it's like 525. It's jumped up. That's like, you know, almost like seven to nine percent of all the people with the ability to have streaming services like Apple Music and Spotify on their phone have them over the next decade. By 2030, I think it'll be close to a billion people. So that that'll be almost a little over double what is available. So imagine and, and, and that's only that's only like one billion. There's less than a billion, not even a billion people on music streaming services, but there's six point three billion people on the planet with smartphones. You know, satellite Wi-Fi, satellite Internet is going to be something that is going to actually be um, more connected as, as opposed to where wires can't go. You know, satellites can go to provide people Internet. And then with video, like there's only 222 million people on Netflix and there's 6.3 billion people. The available market share is massive. So, I mean, as, as big as a company as Netflix is, they don't even have, you know, they don't even have 7% of the market of available people that can get on their platform. It's more like three and a half. So think of the, the growth potential that Netflix can have or anybody that's providing subscriptions via content they can have. That's why we're focused on person-to-person -person subscription content, which I think will trump everything in the future. Yeah, it's interesting because I think there's these two trends happening because... One of the reasons everyone's buying the catalogs is exactly what you said. People see the upside of where streaming's yeah. going. On the other side, you're also seeing, whether it's Netflix or Spotify, the rapid growth that they may have had once starting to slow down a little bit. So you do think about, yes, you know, a service like Facebook, if we think of that as being like the most ubiquitous thing out there, you know, several billion people on it, but it's also because it's free, right? So it's like there's some number of what are the, total number of people that would be willing to pay $9.99 in the U.S. for music streaming service or whatever it, that price difference may be in their respective place. We still haven't gotten there yet. And I'm mm -hmm. curious, you know, what that actual number will be. And it's, it's just so hard to know because I think some people think it's going to be a lot higher and there's other people that think that we're close to that peak. So who knows? 
I don't think we're anywhere near the peak because it's the nature. The market will grow as the youth grow. And so as kids are more like kids are trained and kind of used to subscriptions and virtual currency and app purchases, it's that they've known that their whole lives. I remember when I was first discussing building fan base, I spoke to someone that was in their 30s. They were like, I never subscribed to another person. What? Why would I do that? And then I was in the Apple store and I just randomly asked this 20, I think the, the young lady was probably like 21 years old. I think I asked how old she was. She said, well, I'm, I'm 21. And I was like, if you could subscribe, I asked her what her favorite group was. And my first inclination that she was going to name a very famous artist and she named an indie band, right? So what's your favorite artist? I thought she was going to name somebody like, you know, Ariana Grande. And I said, if you could subscribe to that person for $3.99 a month, that band for $3.99 a month, and they would post videos of them working on their album or exclusive photos and stuff like that. And maybe they might let you buy, you know, tickets to their show before anybody else. Would you do that? And her answer was like, fuck yeah, it's only $3.99. And I'm like, that was when I'm like, okay, I got to do this because they don't care. There was, a, remember, there were legions of people that swore they wanted to own their MP3s. And I'm like, man, it's $10 a month to listen to everything that's ever been created. Only your MP3s is out of here. That's a done deal. So I think the market will, will go as the youth decide and the youth are showing the propensity to spend more virtually. You know, their Cash App, their Venmo, their PayPal, their NFTs, their crypto, they're all in that space. So I think it's going to actually explode way beyond what it is now. Yeah, that's a good point. The other thing, too, is that there are just so many other services beyond the digital streaming providers that are offering some type of music experience that's going to drive up the platform, right? Like it doesn't yep. always have to be streaming. It could be in-app purchases the same way that, you know, these kids go wild about fee bucks or whatever it is in these games. It's going to be the same thing there. As more yeah. and more of these companies get music licensing, like we're going to see that continue to, to happen. So it'll be interesting. I'm telling you, it's going to be, look, I'm spending money on Call of Duty to make my gun cooler or wear a cooler outfit. These kids are going to spend money to have access to shoes before anybody else can, tickets before anybody else can, experiences that no one else can have for, you know, small amounts of prices and that give them exclusivity and clout and bragging rights. Trust me, I know it's exactly what's going to happen. Let's take a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsor. Let's talk more about today's sponsor, Intercept Music. The company is on a mission to empower independent artists everywhere. This is a tale as old as time. Artists and labels have often had to choose between their creative freedom and autonomy and access to marketing and distribution that would catapult their careers. Well, that's no longer the choice, especially today. People can have both, and Intercept is one of the companies making that happen. It offers a fully managed advertising and promotional service, allows you to distribute your music, and you have the opportunity to sell merchandise through its branded online stores. This is your one-stop shop to manage your career and take it to that next level. As an artist or label, Intercept can help you unshackle your monetization opportunities. And as Method Man said himself, you can use this platform and keep 100% of your shit. To learn more, go to interceptmusic.com and learn how this company is helping independent artists like you take their careers to the next level. You mentioned uh, Call of Duty for yourself. Are there any other personal areas that you've been personally, you know, attracted to, whether it's a single game or a solo thing where, you know, a majority of your attention has gone to? Just Call of Duty. I only play one game. 
Call of Duty. I've been playing Call of Duty for like 12 years. I like content. So I've, I used to fly drones like all the time, like, and not just for the fun of flying, but the fun of capturing the actual content and creating content. But other than that, I mean, fan base, social media is like, it's a passion of mine because I like the connectivity and I like the potential. I like the potential of being disruptive and where we can create unique experiences via technology. That's one thing I love about technology. Technology doesn't give my brain like a limit. I'll have conversations with my CTO and say, hey, you know, can we do this? And he's like, the question is not if we can do it. It's just how long it'll take us to do it, how many man hours, but we could do it. And that's the greatest feeling to have. Like, can we make this do this and this do this? And he's like, yeah, we could do that. But and so having like your imagination not being limited, only the only limitation is your resources, like man hours and manpower and funds. And cool. Like, I understand that part. So don't, you know, don't give me a hundred million dollars. Move out of the way, you know. No, don't don't let me raise a hundred million dollars. You want to see an app like be flyer than, than than anything you ever seen? Fan base is phenomenal, and we raised six million dollars. Imagine what we do when we raise sixty six hundred million. It's going to be phenomenal. That's why I'm excited. I'm like, oh, it's going to be go time for sure. So, what does the future fundraising timeline look like for you? When do you think you'll raise again, and how big do you think that'll be? I mean, we've been getting calls, which is kind of curious because I guess the ANR of what a VC is, their version of the ANR has been starting to reach out because they see fan base making waves. And so now it's not me going to VCs, but it's VCs coming to us, which is better. We still, I feel we still have a, a lot of work to do in a short period of time, but I would like to raise a significant series a somewhere, you know, in the eight figure range really to get us, you know, in a finger range to really get us where we need to be because it, because there's so much involved with data and streaming and music licensing. And so these platforms have to be funded to scale. And so we're going to need it. You know, I love the notion of being able to continue to raise equity crowdfunding with people. And I think I'll find ways to continue to do that. But you also, VCs also serve a very good purpose of their knowledge, their relationships, their experience. So I'm not opposed to them. I'm just sometimes primarily opposed to the terms. So now we can have conversations that are different than that. I'm not opposed to the VCs. I'm just opposed to the terms. So sometimes we just have to work better at making sure we get fair terms by doing things on our own. And I think the fact that you're at the place you're in now gives you the leverage to do that, right? I think one of the reasons that the unfair terms happen more often is because the founder or the founders don't come from that place of leverage. They're more so looking for the help just from being able to be sustainable and keep the lights on and all those things. You have that piece of it checked off given what you've been able to do with the amount you've been able to raise. So it's more so, hey, we're trying to go a bit faster. We're trying to do this, this, and this. If you want to be in, it would be great. But if you don't, there's other people knocking at the door who can make this happen. Yeah. I mean, writing your own pad, you know, coming from the music business, I look at like, I look at percentages. So I, I'm on a platform called PitchBook where I can see like how much equity was given up for what percentage. And I'm like, what? Gave up what for 39% of the company? I'm like, hell no, you can't do that because you have to be strategic. And I know sometimes we want to get our product to market so bad and we want to, we feel that once we get there, it doesn't matter if I gave up this much, it's going to be a success and I'm going to be able to do this. But you have to be conservative with equity. You can't be selfish at the same time, people have to, are going to invest money. They're going to want significant portions of your company. 
But I think the more work you do improving your model on your own, the more advantageous you are as a partner to VCs because now you can work together. I love my team. My team is brilliant. They're smarter than I am. I'm just a big idea guy that want to make sure, wants to make sure that the colors look good and the energy is right. And then the rest is up for us to really, you know, structure this business. So I like writing our ticket that way by being independent, as I like to say. So how big is the team now and how big do you think it'll be end of this year? So right now we have a team of 25 developers and probably 15 other personnel of 40. But I think our development team would probably be 150, given a significant raise and probably our executive team probably go from like 15 to 30 people. So it would grow. I mean, you know, and that's with everything running at, you know, at best case, you know, if I had it my way, because we can build faster and more simultaneous functionality. And then I love, you know, being able to pay really smart people to make fans base do amazing things in, in, in the right amount of time. So I'm looking forward to that, though. We have a game plan to really scale up to a million users by June. It's it, two months is like two months is, you know, it's April, you know, what I'm saying April 8th. So we don't have that much time, <laughs> but I'm looking forward to the grind. And I also got to imagine that the Atlanta community and culture ecosystem you're around has and will continue to have so much of an impact on you. Can you talk about how beneficial it's been from that perspective? I know y'all got the gathering spot and you have so many other execs there. How important has that collective been? It's been invaluable because the first conversation that I had about building a startup social media platform happened at the gathering spot. They were members that were in the tech space that I looked at as mentors. Their names are Jewel Burks, Barry Gibbons, and Justin Dawkins. They are all accomplished tech professionals in their own right. And the fact that I could sit right next to them like a kid, you know, being able to talk to like, talk to Michael Jordan or whoever and be like, yo, how do you do this? How do you do that? How are you able to do these things? And them lending their ear and lending their voice and their information to me is invaluable. I think that was really, you know, the essence of community in Atlanta, especially in the black tech space. There are just tons of brilliant people that I've met at those spaces. But those three individuals were like instrumental in helping me shape fan base to the company because they told me, you know, why it's important that you have a CTO that is that has a stake in the in your company. Why it's important, like what your deck must look like. Why, you know, when it's to raise, how you scale, all these things that you have to bring together. And so that's the dope part about it. So it's in the Atlanta community is invaluable in that fashion. We're all like, there's no ceiling of what you can achieve in a city like Atlanta with black leadership. I was just telling, you know, I just saw a clip today about Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson being able to be elected to the Supreme Court. Simone Sanders said, if we didn't elect Raphael Ornock and John Ossoff in Georgia, that would have never happened. He wouldn't have had the votes or the leverage to do so. And so a political community that's aware, that's African-American, that understands how politics play and the ability for you to scale your business. And a city like Atlanta, it's invaluable. That's probably the biggest asset to being anybody in, in the city is knowing that there's a political foundation that 
has been built on for over 60 years that kind of gives people the, the energy and the confidence to try things that no other people would try. Like Tyler Perry saying, I'm going to build a movie studio. Like LA and Babyface saying, we're going to bring a record company to the city. Like someone like The Gathering Spot or Pinky Cole with Slutty Vegan or Tracy Pickett with Hairbrella. Like all these amazing startups that are coming out of Atlanta, Georgia and have come out of Atlanta, Georgia. So it's a place for you to dream and, and excel. It really is. It's remarkable just to see how much of it stems in. I think so many of you as well have roots in music and how I think that has been the core of what you all have been able to do and achieve. And it makes me think a lot about where your inspiration for why this is so important to you came from. You had obviously seen your dad's experience in the music industry and some of the challenges he had had with unfair contracts and things like that. Can you talk a bit about how that through line was for you in terms of the influence and seeing that inspire where you want to be the most impactful and how that shapes fan base? Yeah. So, I mean, as a kid getting into the music industry, the first thing I learned before I learned about music notes, I learned about music publishing. <laughs> and it's just because that's what your family's going to tell you is like, look, all this creative stuff is great, but know your business, right? Because you can get taken advantage of. Don't get caught up in it. It's a joy. Like creating music, being a creator is the best feeling in the world. Making songs that people want to dance to and that are part of their lives and they'll never forget. If you don't have that business, it's going to be something that you're going to wind up having a bitter taste in your mouth about because you've created all this great music, but do you really benefit from it? People that exploit you. So content ownership, ownership of your content, exploiting your content to your benefit has always been something that's in, been in the back of my mind. So that's why I say I've, I've approached tech with a music industry mindset and nothing gets primier than the music business. So like I said, you know, tech is nothing compared to like the record business. So if you can handle the record business, you can handle tech. Because the deals are what the deals are. The deals are straightforward. The, you know, the music industry just makes up their rules. And so I had a great teacher and my father and my mom who just taught me about the business. So I think um, that helps a lot. It gave me it gave me quite a bit of perspective of why artists deserve to get paid more for the content they create. And that's any user on social media. Those are the people that are making these dances go viral. Those are the people that are being funny. Those are people that are bringing really thought, great thought-provoking content that gets you thinking, get you inspired, get you to vote, get you to, you know, to protest. So we have to, you know, make sure that those people have an opportunity to really make sure that they monetize their, their energy in that way. Definitely. And I hear you on how the music industry, there's so, there could be so much lack of clarity on these things. I know one of the things that you've also been pushing towards is to get the music rights back from your dad's music. How has that process been and where are things right now with that? So it's just a matter of time. I mean, the, the good thing about copyright law is they expire. They return to the original authors. And so we're just in the process right now of terminating so much Isaac Hayes publishing. We've terminated all the songs that he wrote from 1963 all the way up to 1968 and going into 69. So there's a, you know, his entire songwriting catalog as a songwriter. We haven't even gotten to the Isaac Hayes era, but we've terminated, you know, one of his biggest works, which is a song called Hold On, I'm Coming that he wrote for Sam and Dave that gets used in commercials all the time. So that process is moving along, you know, very steadily. And now there's new opportunities and new do new deals for my family, equitable opportunities. The ownership is ours. So it's a great spot to be in right now. That's good to hear. I mean, because we definitely know how tough it can be, especially on your side, whether you're an estate manager or you're just more broadly trying to get it back for the sake of your family and loved ones. So that's good to hear. And Absolutely. 
on the estate side of it, I know you do manage that. Definitely heard a number of stories from different people that have managed estates over the years, both the good that comes from it, but also some of the challenges as well. Can you talk a little bit about how your experience has been on that front? I mean, well, I was looking at it. I look at a brand as like a hot air balloon. And so the higher the balloon goes, the more people see it. So it's the, it's the job of an estate to get that balloon as high as possible before you try to do things. So people say, well, how come there hasn't been a, you know, a movie on your father? And I was like, well, there's more work. The balloon got to get a little high. We got to, people got to see the brand and build it. So it's been tough because I think a couple things like icon, black icons are not always held to the same standard or represented in media the way that white icons are. And what I mean by that, and that's the job of actually the black community to uplift its own icons to do so. And what I, I tell people all the time, I say, look, you, you go in a grocery store and you can practice this exercise. You can go, you can go in a grocery store and you're always going to see one of four people in a magazine at all times. You're going to see John Wayne, Ronald Reagan, Elvis Presley, or Babe Ruth at any time. And all of those guys have been dead for quite a long time, but they never let you forget their icons. They never let you forget Audrey Hepburn. They never let you forget Marilyn Monroe. They keep their legacy and their icons immortalized by continuing to push them and elevate them through media. Now, in Black culture, we typically do that for a period of time, but you don't typically see Dorothy Dandridge or Sammy Davis Jr. or James Brown or Martin Luther King or people on covers of magazines just cause, right? It's usually some drama that, you know, some tabloid is trying to bring back up. But just for the sake of doing an amazing pictorial on, you know, Ray Charles and to let the continue to uplift his legacy, that doesn't happen that often. So we have to take better care of our black icons and continue to uplift them in media and do so. That's a good point about the same bases you always see in the magazines or you go through the grocery store. I mean, I think all the names you mentioned are the ones that you often see. On the movie point, though, I do hope that we do get an Isaac Hayes movie at some point. I know you're saying that, you know, these things, you got to wait to the bubble to get a little bit bigger. But it's one of these things where in this moment now where you're seeing, I'm sure you've seen it too, so many music documentaries, whether it's documentaries or the biopics themselves. And yeah. some of them are a lot better than others, but you still know that they all had a ton of money poured into them. So hopefully yeah. while this run is going on, that bubble can meet and the stars can align to make something like that happen. I think so. I mean, we definitely have a documentary that that must be told before feature film. I think a biographical nonfiction version of what really happened and what my dad's life was really like is a story that I think should be told first. And then we could dramatize that and fantasize that in a way that I think brings young people and old people together. And I have that in my mind of how we merge all these, these genres together, um, these generations together to really tell the story of Isaac Hayes, because I think he's probably the most relatable icon to the current generation of any icon that's passed away by the way that he looked, by the way that he type of music he created. Cause I'm like, it's like, there's not too many people that still wear their wear clothes like Michael Jackson or wear their hair like James Brown, but there's several black men with bald heads and beards and sunglasses still in 2022. So the relatability is there. And then in terms of evergreen music, it's just like people continue to sample him to make new records. So I think he has the most connectable thread to the youth coming from his generation to now. So we're definitely going to capitalize on that and expand more on that in 2022 and 2023. Who would you want to play him in a biopic? Ah, I've said this before. 
just off the just off just off first glance of the surface is probably Jonathan Majors, right? I like Jonathan Majors. Jonathan Majors is a phenomenal actor. I looked at him, I said, he could play him. But then there's like, you know, you never know. I mean, there's always this sea of amazing, uh, you know, talent out there, especially from, and people always get in trouble with saying it, but let me tell you something. The, the UK, Brits got the, Brits got those actors. Like they come from places like, I'm like every, have most of the shows I watch on TV, the actors are British. I'm like, what? I'm like, Snowfall? Like all American, but the walking dead is like, yeah, those are the guys that you wouldn't know, but they're so good at what they do. You would have never thought that, but they're so classically trained. And then there's some, you know, amazing actors here in the States as well. But I, you know, like even Daniel Kaluuya, I'm like, yo, man, all these dudes, Brits dudes be crushing it. So who knows though? But Jonathan Majors is an amazing actor. Um, and I think he could do a great job portraying Ice Case. He's a good one. I'm excited to see what he does in this Creed movie coming up. And the range is there. Yeah. You saw the Marvel thing. And yeah. then, of course, Last Black Man in San Francisco. He's so good. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, what's he going to do in Creed? I'm like, okay, what's going on? Like, Creed 3? That's going to be a good one right there. Like, I, I know. I know. Yeah. Be interesting one. That would be good. Yeah. Daniel Kaluuya, of course. I mean, I think he's one of the best under yeah. 40 actors. I mean, period. He's one of the best folks under 40 we got right now. Absolutely. And so, I mean, obviously, what he did with Fred Hampton was amazing. So, I think he would be legit. But... It's good that you brought up the British piece because it's one of these things where we both know if that happened, people would be, you know, all up in arms like they are about a lot of, you yeah. know, black British folks that play American actors but or, or based off of American icons. But it's like you yourself as the person representing the estate and the family is like, you know, I would endorse this based on what you're seeing. But it's, yeah. I mean, we know that how that conversation would go. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I think. Again, like I said, Jonathan Major those was the first in mind that I had. And again, you never know who's out there by way. Like even like I watch just by actors in general. I watch uh, Winning Time, the story about the Lakers and the guy that plays Magic Johnson. They just found him like, I was like, so good. Is he's so perfect for the role. That's what I'm saying. I'm like, there's always the right person for the role is out there. You got to find them. But it's just like, I, cause I don't think he's, he hadn't been in anything. I think a lot of stuff, I don't think he had done a lot of stuff, but they were like, it's this guy in, in California. Like give him a, cause see what him. He came in the room, he smiled. They did that. I was like, that's Magic Johnson and he's killing it. So yeah, you always know that. And I think, and, and also here's another, here's another, here's another dream of mine though, is I do want another Shaft film. I want another Shaft film with a modern Shaft, right? I want a modern, you know, modern day Shaft. And the person that I think that should play that is Mahershala Ali. I would love mm -hmm. to see Mahershala Ali as the new Shaft do that. I know he's about to be Blade. His plate is full. So, but again, yeah, I think Shaft you know, modernized is something else too. And that was such a big part of my dad's career. So, and I think there'll always be an appetite to have a black, you know, superhero in the sense of saying um, a person that stood up for his community and fought crime and, and, and as a, a stand up black man. So I think there's always the ability to do that too. Oh, yeah. I think he would be great in that type of role. And I think that Blade definitely gives you some of that imagery of, you know, the black trench coat and everything and the yeah. whole vibe, too. But yeah, I, th I think that'll be good. And sure, even what artists would, you know, cover the version that your dad did. And, you know, with that, I mean, even thinking about that, too, from a song perspective. Yeah. yeah. So, so we, we, have a, we have a lot of unreleased. I have a lot of unreleased Ice Cage music that was recorded around the same time. And trust me, there's some shafty stuff in there. There's some stuff that's <laughs> like I've been holding on to it for years now, like since 20. I think I transferred those masters in 2014. So for eight years, I haven't even really let some of that stuff out. Because I said, they're going to call about another shaft 
at some point. And I'm going to be ready. I'm going to be ready to, uh, to let people check it out. Oh, yeah. You know the call is coming soon, especially the way that content works right now. The call is coming soon. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Isaac, this has been great. It's been great to chat, hear more about Fanbase, hear about some of the other things you're working on with regards to the state. But before we let you go, is there anything else that you want to plug or let the Trapwell audience know about? Mm. I mean, of course, the download fan base. We have a new version of audio. We have audio chat rooms that are monetized. So a new version of audio is coming in like probably like a couple weeks. We have our version of TikTok and Reels called Flick. So you can make short form video. And we have stories that are for followers and subscribers. So you can put your stories behind a subscription paywall as well. And I think that's something that's amazing too. Like I said, monetizing content for everybody is just something that I think the world's going to be, be all immersive in in the future. It's like right now is that kind of that friction point where it's like, is it really going to be a thing? And people are going to resist it at first. But once it becomes part of the norm, the same way that all these other media verticals are, social media is just the next vertical per subscription. Definitely. We see where it's all headed, right? 10 it's years deep. ago, people thought it was going to be crazy. Be like, oh, you're going to pay people at social media to do posts. And now influencers do it on the regular. It's just a Absolutely. matter of timing platform and everything. And I, I feel like you got the right mix. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Isaac. This is great. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Trapolo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week.